0: stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from the book of Hebrews 4.14 through 5.10, Jesus the Great High Priest. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses." being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's Word.
1: Well, if you've sung that hymn, you've heard this sermon, because that is what this passage is about, what we just sang and prayed to the Lord. But let's go ahead and pray and look together into God's Word uh, that we might hear from Him this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you uh, that when we come before you in prayer, we come through one who can relate, one who has gone before us in every way. God, would you show us Jesus this morning? Give us eyes to see our great high priest. Give us ears to hear your voice and grace to not harden our hearts when we hear it. Lord, may We see you. May we worship you, and may we be changed by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the uh, weirdest experiences as a parent, we've got four kids, and and so we've learned a few things, not many, but a few. Uh, But one of the weirdest experiences of all the different things you encounter as a parent is hearing young couples with no kids telling you how to be a better parent. Any, anybody experienced that? Or telling you how they're going to do it when they have kids someday. Uh, I remember when Joshua was a toddler, um, he was doing something that, I don't know, I don't remember what, a tantrum, something to which we had become immune to, but which was clearly annoying to uh, one of our siblings and their spouse. And as we're kind of trying to deal with the situation, I remember hearing my brother-in-law say to his wife, our kids will never get away with that. (laughs) And I remember, I, I don't exactly remember what I wanted to say at the time, which is probably good, but it's a marvel of parenthood that the best parents are those who don't have kids yet. It is. It's remarkable. And, and so when a young couple with no kids who's never changed a diaper or caught vomit with their bare hands, who hasn't had to fight with car seats or strollers or known what it's like to have to bribe your child just to put their shoes on, or been subject to a thousand judgmental stares as your child melts down in the checkout line, when someone like that who's operating on a full night's sleep. (laughs) When, When they offer advice, someone with no kids, that offers you advice on how to be a better parent, bless their hearts, but it falls on deaf ears because they honestly can't relate. They just don't have a clue what they're talking about. But when someone who's been there offers you help, someone who's raised kids or grandkids, someone with battle wounds and bags under their eyes, or even someone who's just spent time with actual children, like a teacher or something, as opposed to the little cherubs of our imagination that we might have someday. When someone like that offers advice, I am all ears, because they can relate They can identify with the struggle. They know what we're going through. And so I know that they have something to offer by way of help. Well, in our passage this morning, that's what our author wants us to see about Jesus. That he is able to help us in our time of need because he has been there. He can relate He's the better priest who can relate to us in our weakness. Uh, But what kind of weakness is he talking about? What kind of help do we need as followers of Christ? Well, if you remember back from a couple weeks ago, uh, when we looked at chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews and how Jesus offers a better rest to his people, a better rest than Joshua could provide through the old covenant and bringing them into the land, a better rest than anything else that this world can offer. Uh, We saw this offer, this invitation of a better rest, but then we also saw the necessity of persevering in faith in order to enter that rest. The warning against hardening our hearts when we hear God's voice and this call to therefore hold fast to the gospel all the way to the end, to finish well. And that section concluded with a pretty direct warning when it comes to persevering in faith, that you're not going to pull a fast one on God. You're not going to be able to just go through the motions and pretend like you're going to trick God Uh, the Word of God will expose the true condition of our heart. So look back just to the previous section, chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not just what we... See on the outside, he's able to discern within. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So think about how nervous you get when it comes time for your annual physical. Uh, If you're like me, you just regularly put it off. You just keep rescheduling and pushing it out a couple months more because you know what the doctor's going to say already that you need to uh, reduce the sugars and stay off the carbs and lose about 10 pounds and so on and so forth. And I, I, just, I know what he's going to say. I'm not sure I want to hear it. And, and, so, and some of us just put it off indefinitely. We just don't go to the doctor because we don't want to hear what he's going to say because we know that if we go to the doctor for that physical, we are going to be exposed. Our health is going to be laid out on the table both literally and figuratively. And everything wrong with us will be brought to bear, our cholesterol, our blood pressure, everything. And so somebody's going to tell us the real condition of our health. Well, verses 12 to 13 tell us that our spiritual health is going to be exposed before God. In fact, it's, is already evident to him. He already knows the condition of our hearts. And his word will reveal that condition clearly when we stand before him on the last day. And so when we really stop to think about that, that everything we've done in life, or said in life, or thought in life, and everything we've yet to do, think, or say will be laid bare before the judge of heaven. Who then can stand? And really, I mean, there are some people who are are healthy enough that they could just hop up on the doctor's table and say, let's just get this physical over with. I know I've got this. Who among us can waltz up to the throne of God and say, hey, I'm here, let's get this over with. I've done everything you asked me to do, and I haven't done anything you told me not to. Who can do that? We know what's in our hearts. We know that we've let God down in countless ways, and we know how prone we are to doing it again. from the ways that we hurt each other to the ways that we just ignore and disobey God. And, and so the idea of obedience, this, this calling to finish well that we, we looked at two weeks ago, walking with God, persevering in faith, that, that whole idea of obedience can become a matter of great insecurity and frequent failure. That's what it often feels like and and that's what our experience often looks like we just never seem to get it right temptation sneaks up and bites us around each corner and if we're honest sometimes it feels like not even jesus can help us we know all the right answers but that but we still have the same problems I don't know if you've experienced that ever. I, I know what the right answer is, but it doesn't seem to help me say no this time around. The Jesus of our doctrine can often feel cold and distant, out of touch with our actual situation. And, and when you think about you know, the struggle against sin, I mean, he's God. It's not even possible for him to sin. So how can he even truly relate like a young couple with no kids, telling me how to be a better parent. That's what it can feel like. And so we need help. We need help in the face of temptation and sin. We need help to be able to persevere in faith and to finish well. And what the author of Hebrews tells us here is that Jesus really is that help because he really is able to relate to the situation. He does get it, even when we don't feel like he he does. He does get it, and he is therefore the better high priest who relates to us in our weakness and who is able to help us in our time of need. And the way that the author makes this case to convince us of this Uh, is in two parts. In, In chapter 4, 14 to 16, we have the invitation to draw near to God through Jesus, our better priest, who can in fact relate to us in order to find the help we need in our battle against sin, in our struggle to follow God and finish well. There's this invitation to draw near. That's the end of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, 1 through 10, he proves to us that Jesus is in fact this better high priest that I said he is, that he can really relate. Uh, and he shows us what that looks like, What, how Jesus is the priest that we need, that he's even better than the priests of old. And so we should take him up on his invitation. So first is the invitation, then the evidence, and we'll start with the invitation at the end of chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Now, that is a shocking invitation when you remember what he just said a few verses ago. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give account. When you read verse 13, you do not expect the next verse to be, therefore, come on in. You, you expect something more like run and hide, Right? but not if Jesus is your high priest. It's amazing that that verse, you're going to be totally exposed. God will see everything about you. Therefore, come with confidence to him. Wow. Who can say that? It's a shocking invitation. But it's an invitation we receive because Jesus is our high priest. So what is a priest? I mean, already in this book, three or four times, we've seen the author talk about how Jesus is this priest, right? Um, Where does this idea come from? Well, in the Old Testament, God gave ancient Israel priests whose job was to inter, uh, intercede or to mediate between God and humanity, to help... Bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. So Israel was like every other nation when it comes down to it. They were sinful. God didn't choose them to be his covenant nation because they were holier than all the other people groups. He chose them because he loved them and because he made a promise to Abraham. And so Israel was sinners. They were sinners. So how can a holy God take up residence... With a sinful people, they needed a priesthood, someone who could go between God and sinners to make atonement for their sins, to to offer sacrifices that would bring atonement and forgiveness of sin that God might dwell with them. So that was ancient Israel's priesthood, and we're going to see a lot more about that in Hebrews. But all of that priesthood, all of that priestly function was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus. And so, just as the priests would pass through the various chambers of the temple and bringing their sacrifice, uh, their offering before God into the Holy of Holies, so Jesus, our great high priest, passed through heaven itself to enter God's very presence, as chapter 9 puts it, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, a redemption that doesn't wear off. He's the final great high priest. And he's our priest. And so so he's done everything necessary to secure for his people an eternal redemption through his own life, death, and resurrection. He's our great high priest. But not only has he secured that redemption for us, he is able to help us in our daily pursuit of God, in our daily fight against sin in our struggle to finish well, because, verse 15, he can relate. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Every respect, yet without sin again, you read that verse and you think about Jesus and it's like, that just doesn't feel true. It feels like a stretch to say that the perfect Son of God, who shares the glory of the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, knows what it's like to face temptation. Really? But it's true. And we need to be convinced that it's true. And so... What the author does next is is to try and convince us of that. First, by explaining that the office of high priest was designed for uh, relating to us in our weakness. The very office itself was designed for that. And then, second, that Jesus, as priest of an even higher order than Aaron, is also able to relate to us because he shared in our weakness through his humanity. Through his humanity. And so he can help with that grace in our time of need. And so so first, chapter 5, verse 1. Ancient Israel's priesthood was designed to relate to people in their weakness. That's part of the whole goal. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and, and sacrifices for sins. Sometimes we think that, that the priests or, or the clergy are... These super spiritual, almost superhuman in their relationship with God. Or, or even as lording their so called super spirituality over others. But the point here is the complete opposite. They're just men, like everyone else, appointed to serve men, humanity. The priests of ancient Israel, therefore, share a common weakness. And and therefore, they had no claim on the office of priesthood in and of themselves. It was something appointed to them, not something that they achieved or that they earned. And verses 2 to 3 talk about that common weakness, how the priests can relate to those they serve, and how that weakness actually enables them to serve with compassion rather than arrogance and, and, you know, whatever. Uh, It says he can deal gently with, with the ignorant and the wayward, the priest can deal gently with those who don't get it and those who are walking the other direction since he himself is beset with weakness. He shares the same problem. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for, the, for those of the people. He has to take his own medicine first. Because he's not higher or holier than any of the rest of them. He's simply appointed by God's grace to serve. The priests of the Old Covenant were able to have compassion because they needed God's grace just as much as everyone else. And, And therefore, they had no claim on the office. They were appointed by God. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, so that's how ancient Israel's priesthood was supposed to operate. They, it was designed to relate to people in their weakness. Uh, they weren't supposed to be this higher and holier group of people, but someone that you could identify with because they too share the same problem. That's the design. But then what the author does, as we've seen him do multiple times already, and as we'll see him do again and again... He takes some aspect, some element of Israel's old covenant, and shows how Jesus is even better than that at a higher level. So that's what the old priesthood looked like and operated. Well, well here's what Jesus looks like as a better high priest. In uh, and, and, and verses 5 to 10, he makes the same points in a reverse order. That Jesus didn't claim the office for himself, and that he too can relate with us because he shares our weakness as well. So first, uh, he notes the similarity between the priests of Israel who didn't claim the office of priest, but were appointed to it, and Jesus, interestingly, who similarly did not claim the office for himself, but was appointed to it by God, although to a different order of priesthood. So verse 5, So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Jesus could have claimed the priesthood on his own virtue. He's the only person who actually was qualified to do that. But he refused to use his office for selfish gain and instead gave himself up in service. That's what we see. He submits to his father, who appoints him as a priest in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, specifically two of them that he cites here, Psalm 2, which if you go back and read, it's actually a royal psalm. It's a psalm about the the anointed king. And we've seen it already back in chapter 1, Hebrews quoted it. Uh, so so this priest here is a king. You are my son, today I have begotten you. The king is a priest. And then he quotes Psalm 110, which assigns the king to another order of priesthood. Not the priesthood of Aaron that was, that was given uh, under the old covenant in Exodus, but this order of Melchizedek, which is... Where's that come from? If you remember back to Genesis 14, Melchizedek was a priest who was also a king. He was the king of Salem and priest of God most high. And and, and so Jesus is ascribed to this order of priesthood. And it's a little confusing, but in chapter seven, the author is going to return to that and spend a bit of time there. So we're just going to wait to explore it more until we get to chapter seven. But the main point here is to see Jesus' humility. He did not grasp the office of priesthood for his own selfish gain. He rather submitted to his Father, was appointed that priesthood, that he might serve on our behalf. So Jesus is a humble servant. But then second, he's a humble servant who can relate to us. And that's what we see in verses seven to eight, where the author kind of explains what he meant back in chapter four, verse 15, when he said he's not unable to uh, sympathize with our weaknesses. But he, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. What is he talking about? Look at chapter five, verses seven and eight. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Sometimes we can have such a high view of Jesus in his divinity that we end up with a low or unrealistic view of Jesus in His humanity. We recognize Jesus as God, right? All power, all authority, all wisdom and glory and might, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit and glory and eternal love. But we forget that the second person of the Trinity was both fully God and after the incarnation, fully human at the same time. Otherwise, he couldn't be our Savior. If he's not true God, he can't save. Only God can save. But if he's not true man, he can't stand in our place and represent us and actually be our Savior. He had to be both. And so back in chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't just show up looking human. He didn't just appear human. He became human, true human at his incarnation, taking humanity into his divinity. It's a mystery, but that's what scripture tells us. But if Jesus is really human, That means he can relate with us in our weakness. It means that with respect to his humanity, he knows what it's like to be hungry and tired. You think of those stories in the Gospels where he was tired so he's sleeping in the middle of a storm. The Son of God needs sleep? Yeah, yeah, he does. He knows what it's like to feel pain and weariness. And it means that he knows what it's like to be tempted. To be truly tempted to sin. Again, we, we think Jesus is God. It's not possible for God to sin. So, so he couldn't have really been tempted. He's just kind of you know, putting himself in our shoes. But it, but it's not like he was really get, could do something. And with respect to his divinity, he can't sin. But with respect to his humanity, he can, but didn't. He can, but didn't. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses as one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. In his earthly ministry, the days of his flesh, verse 7, he was tempted to the point of crying out in prayer to his Father with deep groans and tears. Have you ever wrestled against sin with deep groans and tears? When you think of the beginning and ending of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, what two events bookended his kingly and priestly service on earth? The wilderness and the garden. The wilderness where Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And the garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled in prayer with his soul, sorrowful even to death. In the wilderness, Jesus faced the temptation to give up his dependence on his Father, to doubt his Father's love, and perhaps most alluring, to receive all the kingdom and all the glory with none of the pain of the cross. All he had to do was bow down and worship Satan, and it could all be his without bearing the eternal weight of God's wrath. I mean, we, we read that and we think, Pfft. I mean, it's not like Jesus ever entertained actually doing that. Then you look at the garden, pouring out his heart to God in prayer with loud cries and tears, his sweat heavy like drops of blood. And what is it that he prayed in the garden? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And what was he praying? What was in the cup? The Old Testament image of the cup. There's only one thing in the cup. It's the wrath of God against sin. His prayer was that if there's any way possible to accomplish the plan of the kingdom without suffering and receiving the full weight of God's eternal judgment against sin, if there's any way possible, let it pass, Lord. Let it pass, Father. You better believe Jesus was tempted. But he was tempted yet without sin. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins first in order to be able to serve us. He's the perfect priest who can relate to us in our weakness, whose prayers were heard by his Father because of his reverence, who learned obedience and was perfected through suffering. And because of that, because he experienced what you experience and was victorious in the midst of it, he's able to be a better high priest. He alone is qualified. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is able to help us in our time of need in the face of temptation because he's been there and he overcame. He can relate to us in our weakness. And so when you are tempted to sin, and all of us face that every single day, when you're drawn to the shiny things of this world that promise so much life and pleasure and, and whatever, when your heart simply wants something that God says is not good for you, and you know it's wrong but you want it anyway, When you're simply tired, you know what God wants you to do and you honestly don't know if you have the strength to do it. When you're worried, you feel like the walls are closing in and you you just want the easiest solution or the quickest escape. When you're hurting and it feels like if I could just make them hurt in the same way they hurt me, I would feel better. When you want to follow God and honor Him and finish well. But it's just so hard to keep going. When you're tempted like that, where do you typically look for help? What do you do? So many of us simply look within. We look to ourselves. And that is the default of the human condition, fallen humanity. Just look within, rely on your own strength, your own wisdom, follow your heart. Either we don't think we need help because we've got this, or we don't want help, maybe because we're not sure we want to resist that temptation, or because we're so ashamed of having messed up so often that we feel that there's no grace left so I've just, I got myself into this mess, and now I just have to, to figure it out and do it. Whatever the reason, most of us look within to our own strength or with despair to our own weakness. Maybe some of us look to someone else, you know, a parent, a friend, significant other, someone on whom we place the weight of our sanctification, like if you don't call me at 5 a.m. to to help me get up to read the Bible, I'm never going to do it, and and all of a sudden now this this accountability partner is responsible for my holiness. We place the weight of our sanctification, which in the end will only disappoint us, and will probably crush them. But there's only one person that we need to look to, only one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ. And we need no other mediator than Him. Some traditions will tell you, you know, go to the saints for help in temptation, or go to Mary. None of that's in the Bible. And, and none of it makes sense when you see what Scripture does tell you to do. To go to Christ, the great high priest. You need no other. He's the one who can relate to us. He's the one able to help us in our time of need. And so what does it look like when I'm in that temptation to draw near to that throne of grace with confidence through Jesus, our better high priest? What what does it actually look like to avail ourselves, to answer the invitation to come? Well, when Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. He poured his heart out to his father with loud cries and tears. He directed his plea for help to the one who was able to do something about it. The one who had the power to save him from death. That's what he's inviting us to do in chapter 4, verse 16 to believe the gospel, to hold fast to our confession that through the blood of Jesus we are cleansed and redeemed and welcome into the very presence of God, even with all of our sin exposed, and then with confidence in Jesus who secured our salvation and who can relate to us in our weakness to draw, to draw near to that throne of grace in prayer that we might receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need, our time of temptation. The one who carried his own prayers to the Father and received an answer for his reverence is able to carry our prayers to God as well. In Romans 8, it says, Jesus is right now, in this very moment, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you pleading His own blood, representing us, and answering with grace to help us say no to sin and yes to God. Right now, in this moment, giving that grace through His Spirit. And so we pray. In temptation, we must pray. We follow the model of our mediator who, who knows what we're going through. He knows how hard obedience is and, and, and what suffering feels like, and we look to Jesus and we pray with loud cries and tears when necessary. As we nearly buckle under the weight of temptation. Lord, deliver me from evil. Lead me not into temptation. Protect me, forgive me for all of the ways that have let you down. Thank you that you do forgive me through Jesus, my high priest help me hold fast help me believe that forgiveness help me not come ashamed into your presence but with confidence holding fast to the gospel help me see this situation the way you see it help me believe what is true right now in the midst of so many lies help me want what you want and and love what you love and Hate what you hate. Give me your heart in this situation. Pry my grip from my own life and my own desires and agenda, and, and give me the grace to follow you, whatever the cost. Because there is joy and satisfaction and glory to your name when we follow you. We pray. We pray our guts out. We pray. We need help in temptation, and and we find that help through Jesus in prayer. However desperate, however imperfect, however inarticulate. Sometimes we're just babbling because we don't know what to pray. We're just praying out of our heart. And and even when we, we can't find the words, that's okay. Because the Holy Spirit within you is also praying for you in that very moment. That's so what Romans 8 tells us. Likewise, the, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what, we, what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us, for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we pray. And Jesus takes those imperfect prayers, He sanctifies them with His own blood, and He presents them before His Father who answers with His grace. We pray. Now, we do other things in the midst of temptation. Prayer is not the only tool God has given us. We read Scripture. We memorize it. We share our burdens with one another. We ask others to hold us accountable. We pray for each other, not just for ourselves. We we worship to fight sin. When we're gathered in worship, we're rehearsing to ourselves what is true and who is who is truly valuable. So in our worship, we fight sin. In our singing, we fight sin. Sometimes we need more focused help to fight sin. A counselor, a therapist, a support group. There's no shame in any of that. But here's the deal. None of that will avail to anything Apart from prayer. Because it was through prayer that our high priest persevered in faithfulness to his father. And it's through prayer that we appeal to our high priest for his strength, his grace. The priest who can relate to us, who knows what we're going through and what it feels like, and has compassion on us in our suffering. Our greatest need is the power of Christ. And it's his delight to share that with us, that we might become more like him. And so when you're tempted to turn off of the path or to lose sight of our confession of the gospel, know that Jesus gets it. He knows what you're going through. can relate to everything that you're experiencing and know that jesus is there offering help to you right now by his grace as our better high priest a priest who can give mercy and grace to help you follow god in your time of need let's pray Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you. We need your grace. We need your compassion. Because we still mess up. We messed up this morning. We messed up last night. We're going to mess up later today. But Lord, your grace is so sufficient. Your power is so strong your spirit is so present with your people. We need you. And we praise you that you are with us. That you, right now, are interceding at the Father's right hand for us. That you have done in your earthly ministry, in the days of your flesh, everything necessary to secure for us an eternal redemption through your life, your death, your resurrection. And that you haven't just accomplished it, but now through the Spirit, you're applying it as you change our hearts. God, we need you. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have you. Lord, may we never forget that, no matter how hard the temptation, how hard the struggle, how lost we feel. Help us never lose sight of Jesus, our high priest.